Uh, I hope you're still there. Uh, tonight we are in Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, we are going to close out our series on uh, these, on the letters of the Apostle Peter. We've been uh, methodically going through both of these letters, First and Second Peter. And we arrive this evening at part 16 in this series as we've been navigating uh, each chapter, uh, seeing what we can see, especially in uh, trying to relate it back to the Apostle Peter's own life. And interestingly enough, I, I think it's uh, fascinating that uh, Peter himself actually does a nice job of sort of concluding uh, this letter as well as concluding the series just by what he says in the opening verses of this chapter. Notice with me verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Second Peter 3, 1, he says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Here, uh, Peter self-references the fact that this is the second letter that he has, uh, has composed to be uh, read for these churches, for their encouragement, for the building up of their faith. And he very clearly makes it uh, evident what both of these letters have been about from the very beginning. He says, I did this because I wanted to stir up your minds. I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, by hearkening back to all those things that the prophets spoke about, all those things that were, uh, that were there for us in the Old Testament, which we would call the Old Testament, which to him was just the scriptures. And he, he's referencing all that, saying, I wanted you to see how all of this comes together and shows us what? The Lord and Savior, as he says there. Again, it goes back to what, he's, what he talked about in chapter 1, which we spent a lot of time on, which is his whole premise is building up the assurance of faith through what? The knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here he says, from the very first time I put my pen to this paper, I've desired nothing more than to get you to remember. <laughs> to remember that all of this, all of this concerns the Lord and Savior, or concerns Jesus, this has been his primary sort of uh, motivation, his intention has been to, uh, that word stir, to, uh, to awaken, to arouse the faith of these churches uh, to even greater faith by causing them to, to see by, uh, and what is interesting is what he says there, by way of remembrance to be mindful. He's basically saying, I want you to remember to remember that all of this stuff it deals with Jesus. All of the prophets, all of the apostles, everything that we have said, he's saying, we are basing on the prophets. And all the things that the prophets were saying, it's based on the revelation and testimony of Jesus. The word made flesh, as it says in John 1. From beginning to end, this is what the scriptures are about. And from beginning to end, these are, that's what these letters are about. And, and so we could also carry that forward and say from beginning to end, that's what our lives are about. Testifying and bringing others to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As he's evidenced through these letters by how we live. Uh, the ways in which we interact. The, the, the stand which we make for the truth of God in the face of many who would uh, diminish or uh, degrade God's truth. Like these churches in Peter's day, you and I today in this church, this is our lone foundation. It is Jesus Christ 
alone. This is the only thing that we can cling to. The only thing that we can hold fast to is this very fact that our living, breathing hope, to steal a quote from 1 Peter, is the true grace of God in which we stand, 1 Peter 5.12. I would say that this is mission critical for the church. For not just the churches in Peter's day, but for us now, the church is, is, is to be steadfast and sure in the fact that all of this, it points to Jesus and all of what we have, it's bound up in Jesus. Because notice what he says in verse 3, because there's going to be those who, who mock and try to uh, discourage your faith. Notice he says, verse 3, knowing this first. That there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. We we looked at this a lot pretty heavily last week in chapter 2 where he really details who these scoffers are. these, These mockers, these ones who are driven by nothing but their own passions and their own desires. They are self-authoritarians who claim that they know more about the scriptures and know more about the truth than actual truth. And they twist it to question actually God's promises. And such is what uh, Peter is implying by verse 4. Notice he says what these scoffers end up saying. Knowing this verse that there shall come in the last days scoffers saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. These mockers, these ones who are just doubters of everything that they see, they evidence their skepticism by claiming that there's no sign of Jesus' return. If you read some of the early letters, some of the earliest church letters were uh, like the letters to the Thessalonian churches. And if you remember what those churches are about, it's all about the second advent of Christ. That he's coming back. Peter references this at the end of, first, of his first letter. That we are in the last days. It would seem as those days, that the, those years, at least in their moment, kept churning forward. And there's no sign of Jesus' coming. It would seem as though these scoffers are correct. Where is the promise of his coming? Why isn't he coming back yet? But I think what Peter is trying to aim at is that really what they're doing by making this sort of claim, by making this sort of judgment that there is no sign, there is no promise that we can stand on that Jesus is coming back. These scoffers are just bearing witness that they don't really know what they're talking about. They're trying to uh, see the state of the world through their own sort of eyes and say God's indifferent God doesn't care about our world because elsewise, where is he? Surely those promises were mistaken. Surely this sort of life wouldn't be the type of life that a good God would give his people. Therefore, Peter is drawing the church's attention to this message because he wants them to see just how ignorant they are of this. Notice he says that in verse 5. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Notice he says they are willingly ignorant to to sort of, um, basically he's saying they are confirming their unintelligence. (laughs) By saying there's no sign of Jesus' coming. There's no sign of this second advent. 
And he says they are willingly ignorant of this. And notice what he goes on to say and just sort of prove uh, sort of uh, what God is doing in this day and age, in their day and age. Notice he says, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You notice his train of thought. Hey, just as though, uh, yes, it it might look as though everything has continued since that day and nothing has really changed. It's gone from bad to worse to even worse. But Peter is drawing their minds to a specific event in which the world was changed. Yeah, it looks like there is no promise or sign of Jesus' coming. But he says, God has already executed universal global judgment before. (laughs) Called the flood. He's already uh, performed this by his word. And here, as he is asserting, he's already assured us that there's another day, another day of global universal judgment coming. This time, as he says in verse 7, this time coming through fire. This is his words to, uh, to the nations. Go with me to a couple places just to see uh, some of the, the, the references that Peter is, is no doubt thinking of. Go to Isaiah chapter 66. Here we get a word from the prophet Isaiah which hearkens unto this day that Peter is here referencing. The day of judgment, the day of the Lord, so to speak. Notice Isaiah 66 verse 15. The prophet says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 38. A couple pages or a couple books over to Ezekiel chapter 38 where this prophet likewise speaks of the same day. Ezekiel 38, look at verse 22. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him. An overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. We could also go to Amos chapter 7 and Malachi chapter 4. And actually we could go to very many of the Old Testament prophets. One of the prevailing themes with which they were bound to to preach and proclaim is just the fact of this day of the Lord which is coming. It's a judgment of fire. It's a judgment of righteousness. And he has assured us by his word just as he assured Moses. Hey, there is a day coming in which the floods will cover this earth in a flood of judgment. He has assured these prophets and likewise the apostles themselves that this judgment is coming. And it's coming when Jesus Christ himself returns. And I think the point he's making, if you go back to first or 2 Peter, 
The point that he's making when he says that they are willingly ignorant of these things, they are actually willfully ignoring Scripture by saying that there are no signs, there are no confirmations, there are no promises of this second advent that is coming. They're willfully ignoring the scriptures and what they are saying and leading many, uh, many that would hearken unto their deceptive words. As he had said back in chapter 2, their great swelling words. They are deceiving many by saying that there is no sign of his coming. But I love what he says in verse, in verse, um, uh, verse 5 there. 2 Peter 3, 5. For of this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And notice, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The very word that that executed that universal global judgment through water is now sustaining this world and keeping it in motion until he, the sovereign Lord and creator, decides it is time to execute his second wave of universal global judgment. Nothing has impeded his words. Nothing has even come close to infringing upon his power. The same word that executed this before is the same word that is sustaining us now. And is the same word that will, that will execute judgment thereafter. This same sovereign God is over it all, he is saying. He's over every single, uh, uh, every single motion of this heaven and of this earth. And he is keeping it. He is reserving it. Even now. Therefore Peter is I think suggesting. That the state of our world. The state of of the world as he knows it. Is not an indication that God is indifferent. As the scoffers would seem to say. It's not that he is indifferent. It's just an indication that man's heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? The the vitriol that we see is just evidence that, that man's heart is bent towards insurrection. Bent towards going away from the things of God. Which is what God is reserving them to. As he says in verse 7. A day of judgment and perdition. That's what's coming for those who are uh, performing and executing this insurrection against the truth of God. Just because there's no signs... <laughs> Bright neon indicators, so to speak, of this imminent return does not mean that it's not true. This is what Peter's saying. Actually, the delay in judgment, as we might perceive it, is actually a sign of something better. It's the, the surest sign that this God, that we have this God who is keeping and sustaining this world by his word, as he says in verse 7, is a gracious and benevolent God. That's his point in verses 8 and 9. Look what he says. But beloved church, don't be ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness. But is long suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. 
I love those verses. Because whereas the scoffers, the mockers, the doubters of Jesus and his truth would say, where is the sign and the promise of his coming? Peter is saying that you're missing the point of what we're supposed to be focusing on. Why has he not come? It's because he has not been done with this world yet. He is still executing his gospel. He is still being patient with sinners in this lifetime. See, Peter knows the human heart. He knows that... We are addicted to justice. We want comeuppance for those other people. We want them to feel the judgment that we feel like they should deserve. The bad guys. The, the them out there. They need to be judged. They need to, they need to get their due. How can God put up with such fickle, uh, horrible people for all of these thousands of years I think those sorts of questions reveal uh, our hearts and how we misunderstand God's heart. Because God's, as Peter says here, his deepest longing is that for none should perish and that all should come to repentance. The long delay in judgment as we account it. Which is only long and seeming laborious by our reckoning is not God's indifference. It's not God's laziness is what Peter is saying here. It's actually God's mercy. It's God's mercy on a world that is just brimming with sinners. This delay is a sure sign. That bound up in the Lord's heart is nothing but grace and mercy, mercy and patience. And he's displaying this for the world to see. It's evidence, I think, that the work of Christ worked. (laughs) He drank God's wrath and then cried, tis done. And the one who bore the brunt of God's wrath or sin uh, bore it so that he might win our souls and hearts back to him. And now we are in this, quote, long delay while God executes and furthers his good news to the ends of the world so that none should perish. Because you see, just as the judgment, as the prophets foretold, has been forecasted, it's, it's been a sure sign that this day of the Lord is coming. So too has the remedy. The escape for that day of the Lord has also been forecasted in all of those messages of the prophets. It's the, the, the quote, escape is none other than Jesus himself. As Peter has already said, he's the point of it all. He's the prophetic point. He is the one for whom all of the prophets foretold. And he is the one, as he is now here saying, he is the one that we are declaring before you as the apostles. Therefore, as long as this this world remains, it's because God's purposes aren't over yet. God's not through with our world. He's not through with this life. He's, his patience hasn't worn out just quite yet. There's still a little bit more to do. Still a little bit more of his glory to be evident. Still a little bit more of his grace to be seen in the lives of sinners coming to a saving knowledge of his good news for them. See, I think Peter wants the church to be sure 
That this day that is coming is a sure thing. (laughs) But I think what he also wants is them to see that this is a serious thing. Notice verses 10 through 12. God's heart is that none should perish. But he says, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. He wants them to raise the bar, so to speak, raise the stakes of of seriousness with which they consider this day of the Lord. It's no light thing to wish for this day to come. This day of judgment and perdition, as he has already said, it is going to be a day of justice and righteousness and holiness, meaning everything that is antithetical and opposed to righteousness will be wiped out, perished forever, ruined, utterly destroyed. This all-consuming fire of God's righteous wrath is going to completely melt, as he says there, with fervent heat, all of these works of darkness and unrighteousness. He wants them to see that inviting this day of the Lord is inviting a day of wrath. Mercy will be no more. Such is why he's saying, what type of people should we be? Did you notice that's his question? Verses 11 and 12, it's very wordy, but he's asking a question. What type of people should we be knowing that this is true? He's, he's basing what he's going to say off the assumption that they likewise see that this is true. That this is a sure thing. This day of the Lord, he's saying, it's going to happen. Like a thief in the night is going to come about in this world. And it's going, all of, of these things that we see and know are going to melt away in the bright, white hot fury of God's righteousness. So therefore, what type of people should we be? Should we be people, as he says there, that are actually hasting this day? As he says there, should we be looking for it and hasting unto it? uh, This coming of the day of the Lord, when all of these things will be dissolved? Actually, as he says there, we should be, verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. See, from here to the end of the chapter, I think he, he articulates precisely what he's been leading up to all along. That knowing that this is coming... How are we to live right here, right now? What type, of, what type of people should we be as the church? Well, number one, verse 13, we should be people who live according to his promise. We, as he says there, according to his promise, according to his words, the very words that keep the heavens and the earth and all the stars and all the galaxies in motion according to his power, that's the same word that we are banking on. According to that word, as he says, we look forward to the day when all of these things culminate. Saying that is our blessed hope. The new heavens and new earth is coming 
of the day when these things will be so and righteousness, pure righteousness will dwell in this place where only wickedness now reigns. But also look at verse 14 and 15. Because along with living our lives according to that promise, as if it's a sure thing, he's basically saying that is already going to happen. And we live in light that it is already a reality for us. Verse 14, wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless and to count that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. We should be people who live our lives demonstrating and declaring that this long delay is the time of salvation, the time of redemption, that because he is patient, he is seeking more souls and lives to come into relationship with him. Notice, Peter, the the writer, is, is bookending this letter now with that word, diligent. It appears quite often in the first chapter as he says um, uh, in verse 5 of chapter 1. And beside this giving all diligence. He's, he's seeking for this church to see. He's counseling them in light of this coming day. That we who are the Lord's ought to endeavor, as he says here, with all of our faithfulness to live in such a way that magnifies what? His salvation of sinners. He says that we should account this long suffering of our Lord, that this is salvation. Live in light of that. Live according to that word. And we should also be, as he closes out the letter, people who grow. Notice verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be both glory now and forever. Amen. I love how he alludes to the Apostle Paul's writing, even as he's writing this epistle. Which makes me believe, too, that the idea of what Scripture is was already becoming evident even in his own day. He was accounting those other things that Paul was writing as Scripture. Likening them just along with the Old Testament references he had also uh, referenced. But I I find it interesting that he notes that Paul's writings too were being, as he said, rested with or they were being twisted. Actually, it's even stronger than that. That these scoffers were actually torturing these words of Paul to their own destruction, he says. By making them mean something that they don't mean. By making them appear as though they aren't assuring the churches of the truth. And he says they're doing this to their own destruction. Again, they are being willfully ignorant of the things of the Lord. Therefore, he says, Beloved, don't be led away by their error. 
Don't be ensnared by such things that they say. Instead, opposite of all that, verse 18, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this we see, I think, the truest and the clearest definition of what is your duty and my duty as Christians here in 2021. Is growth and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is what he began. This is so sort of poetic. It bookends this letter. Chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, or excuse me, Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's what it's been about the whole time. That their assurance for faith is their sort of objective of faith. And as long as they live, they press forward, they press deeper into the knowledge of this Jesus. Whose sovereignty and whose grace reaches beyond even the furthest reaches that they can even comprehend. And he says, press into that. You want to be sure that you're sure. You want to have a, a faith that stands on, quote, solid ground. Grow in grace. Grace and peace abound in this knowledge. As he says, find, be in verse 14, that you may be found in him in peace. How? By growing in this grace. (laughs) Having the roots of your faith press deeper and deeper into the rich Soil of gospel truth, knowing that this Jesus who was crucified for you is the same Christ who is king over all things. He says here now, be diligent, make every effort to grow in this knowledge as long as you remain on this planet. Church, this is your task, he's essentially saying. All those other things... They are, they are fruits of this one thing. Growing in grace. Do not be, as he says here, a, sort of a plant, a, a shrub that has, that has no roots. And it can be easily plucked out of the soil. But like a tree whose roots go deep and wide and strong and firm. Be planted in this knowledge of Christ. Alexander McLaren writes, keep yourselves in touch with Christ and Christ will make you grow. (laughs) This is, I I love that this is what Peter has made this letter be about the whole time. Knowledge of this Savior and Lord. And here we can can go back and, and think about this in light of Peter's own life. That he knew of this man, Jesus He spent three years with him in ministry during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And all the things that he witnessed, all of the events that he was an eyewitness to, that he was privy to. All of the different miracles, all of the different interactions that Jesus had. The many lives that Jesus Jesus touched with his healing grace and his uh, sovereign power to forgive and to heal and to raise from the dead. Jesus saw all of that. And yet it wasn't only until after Jesus ascended that all of this clicked. And he says that that guy 
that I spent so many days with. He's what this whole thing is about. As he says in Acts chapter 2, he is both Lord and Messiah. He's the king and he's the sovereign ruler. He's the savior and he is the the, the one who controls all things. The winds and the waves. And I can't just help but think that he he thought back to that one time when he calmed the, 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 the raging sea with a word. And by that same word he is keeping this earth in motion. And by this same word he is keeping them in peace. This Savior, Jesus. We will never exhaust the amount of knowledge we can grasp from him. He is an eternal well of, of rich and deep grace that we can go to and continually be extracting from. And it never runs out. We are forever On sort of an endless sort of cave dive into the knowledge of Jesus. That's what I think the life of faith is. That's what I like to picture. You're going spelunking. That's what faith is. You're cave diving in the truth and the knowledge of Jesus. And you can never find the end of that cave. It just keeps going. And as soon as you think you find the end, there's a new cavern to explore. A new way in which you realize how Jesus' grace affects the here and now. And it changes your outlook and your posture. This, as Peter was writing to the church, this growth in grace is the best witness that they can leave to the world. That this day is coming. And that they, ha- they have the peace and the assurance of it. But it's also the best witness that they can say to the world that they too can have this same peace and assurance. And it's found in Christ. You know, we've said before in different Bible studies and different venues. How even in the last several months, but I would say even for my whole life, I would, as I look back on it. <laughs> And think, how in the world can someone endure all of that without a knowledge of Jesus Christ? Me, I I don't know how that's possible. All of the, the, the various troubles and trials and sufferings and griefs that even my short time on this earth has endured. Maybe you've been on this earth longer and you have way more things that you're thinking about. All those trials... They make us see that this word of the Lord sustains us all. And our peace and our rest in his word, his word of sustenance and sovereignty for this world, assures us that we can rest in knowing that he knows the ends from the beginnings. So too, as we grow in this grace, we evidence the peace that we have and the peace that the world can have too. So here, may we, Live and function as the church, patiently awaiting the day of the Lord. Knowing that he is sovereign over all of our days. Amen. Let us pray.